All right, Catherine Stewart open. Hi, everybody. This is Paul, and welcome to another session of challenging our mindsets on uh, of the right-wing Christian church and asking the question, is God really as Republican as we think he is? So thank you for letting me challenge that mindset for you. And I want to tell you as we go into our podcast today about a story that's in the LA Times. It's I'm recording this on May 19th, and, and the LA Times has this story today, and it's about Norma McCorvey. You may know who she is. She was Jane Roe in the Roe v. Wade case. And very famously, Norma McCorvey converted to Christianity in the mid-90s and became a very strong voice in the pro-life movement. But now there's a documentary coming out that that is called Her Deathbed Confession. Uh, she passed away a couple of years ago. And in it, she says she was actually paid to be in the pro-life fight that I, I believe she did have an actual Christian Christian conversion, but it caused her to break relationship with her girlfriend at the time and uh, to be used, she says, by the pro-life movement. Now, uh, the thing about politics is it chews up on both sides. She also was, was shunned by the pro-choice side as well, which sort of pushed her to the pro-life side. But I want us to think about this, that the pro-life movement paid a woman to be their front man, so to speak, for the movement. And and part of my problem with our stance on abortion or gay marriage is not that I ask anybody to change what they spiritually believe about those things, but to examine is how we're executing out of that, promoting the gospel and the message that God has for us to promote. My, cur- my concern is not our political stances. It's that our political stances have usurped our biblical ones, that our willingness to fight for political wins can overrun our command to love people. What would you say if I told you many of our political stances begin as just that political stances and not moral ones? That's what our podcast is about today. Would that make us reconsider the political fights we pick with people outside our church walls, the ones we're supposed to be bringing in and making into disciples? What if our religious political stances are financed by a well-organized group that are perhaps more interested in their personal interest or political power than in the spiritual goals we might believe we have. Would we be willing to consider that maybe God has another way to advance his agenda than partnering with some really unseemly politics? Could God's agenda be different than ours? I hope you'll consider that today as we have our conversation with author Catherine Stewart, who took a look behind the curtain in the religious right-wing battle, and it didn't look pretty. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let me change that. Actually, I hope you don't enjoy the podcast today. I hope it challenges your heart and tests your kidneys, as the Bible says, to make sure your political beliefs are in line with the beliefs that were demonstrated by Jesus in the Bible, because that's our goal, right? All right. If you haven't turned me off already, listen to the show. It's a good one. Hope you enjoy it. We're talking religion and politics on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of the partisan evangelical church and asking the question, is God really a conservative Republican? And does God require his followers to be? What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. 
podcasting worldwide on the NPE network at npepodcast.com. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. We're not electing a pastor-in-chief. We're electing a commander-in-chief. With the Nonpartisan Evangelical himself, Paul Swearingen. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Hope you're doing well, sheltering in place today, feeling good about where you are, and uh, hopefully we're seeing positive signs that sometime soon, but not too soon, we'll be able to get back to life. And so glad you're listening in with me as we walk this through together today. I am Paul Swearingen. Have a an exciting guest joining us today, author of a book called The Power Worshippers, the da- Inside the Dangerous Rise of the Religious Nationalism. And Catherine Stewart is our author, and she contributes to the New York Times and the American Prospect and a bunch of other cool media outlets. So Catherine, thank you for joining me via Zoom today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're, we're all going to be Zoom ex- experts by the end of all this, aren't we? <laughs> Indeed. And some of us will be uh, better at homeschooling than we <laughs> Well, I'm so glad to get to talk to you today, and my wife and I have enjoyed reading your book. It's called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, and so that's a... That's going to be a title that can tweak the uh, insides of a few people out there. So tell me about power worshippers. What does that mean exactly, and and what is the book about? Well, the power worshippers is really about the fact that what pretends to be a religious movement is really, in fact, a political movement that cloaks itself in religious rhetoric. And it's a, a sort of form of nationalist religion that ties the idea of America to specific religious and cultural identities. It says that what authentically you know, makes us a, a great nation is this idea that sort of we, we share one religion and the believers in that particular version of that religion are the true Americans and uh, others who interpret the relation, the religion differently or belong to other religions or no religion are somehow not as authentically American as others. So nationalist, uh, I also say uh, the subtitle is inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism and nationalist religion is inherently anti-democratic and tends toward authoritarianism around the world. So the book is a, a, a bit of a warning. That's why I say inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism. Wow. Okay. And so, where do you how how do you see that logistically working itself out? You you talk about several organizations, not for profit. I assume five hundred one c three religious based organizations, tax exempt, that are out there working to sort of instill their brand of politics. And so, where have you seen that as you have you journeyed about and we're working on this book? Sure. I mean, the book, the movement consists of a variety of for-profit and non-profit organizations like right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, data organizations, and a lot of different uh, media outlets and a lot of other initiatives. And, you know, I think a lot of, you know, it's not leaderless exactly, but it's kind of centerless. But what this movement has in common is a kind of common political vision, which is an anti-democratic political vision. I think a lot of people make the mistake of persisting in viewing this as a culture war. And the culture war is still there, to be clear, but it's a mistake to think that the culture wars and cultural issues are driving the politics. 
and that what we're seeing is a grassroots expression of social discontent. I mean, the defining feature of this movement is it's using the culture war to solidify a certain type of political power for movement leaders and their political allies and certainly their most well-resourced funders. And the culture war issues have, like, I'm thinking about most obviously the issue around abortion or same-sex marriage. These issues have been cultivated and exploited for consolidating a certain kind of political power. So that's an interesting point, and I think it's a really important point. So your book is not anti-religion and not anti-religious people being involved in civic engagement, but, but rather sort of the people at the top who are using that religious civic engagement and maybe manipulating it a little bit towards uh, uh, their own end. Absolutely. It, it, it's become a very effective tool for manipulation. I mean, the first, first thing to do about this movement is not a religion. It's a political ideology that cloaks itself in religious rhetoric. So, you know, movement leaders know that if you can get people to vote on two or three issues, you can capture and control their vote. So let's look about the abortion issue. I think that's the best illustration of this. We've bought the narrative that religious nationalism in America arose as a kind of unified reaction to the horror of one Supreme Court decision in 1973. But that just isn't true. The reality is that abortion was consciously selected and cultivated as a political issue. And that actually happened quite a few years after the Supreme Court decision. I mean, let's remember that when Roe versus Wade was passed, most American Protestants supported some form of liberalization of abortion law. Even uh, Billy Graham himself said in 1968, I believe in Planned Parenthood. In general, I would disagree with the Catholic stance. This was largely seen as an issue of concern to Catholics, not Protestants. Even Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero, he supported some form of abortion law liberalization, at least early in his career. And his wife, Peggy, believe it or not, was a co-founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. But over time, those pro-choice voices or even nuanced voices were purged from the Republican Party in order to sort of, you know, uh, create a, a way in which to capture and direct people's votes to vote for the sort of hyper-conservative candidates that this movement favors. Now, some people have asked me, you know, can you be pro-life and not be part of this movement? And of course you can. You can take that view or you can take a nuanced view on this particular issue and still support democracy. But you need to understand this. If this is the one issue that decides your vote, then you are ending up being manipulated in service of a religious nationalist agenda. I th and I think that's important. I, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people that are very passionate about the issue of, of being pro-life and protecting the lives of babies. And, and what I tried to, I, I don't think anybody is for baby death. <laughs> That's, I, I don't know any candidate out there. And, and so it's, a, it's an, a discussion about when life begins and all of those things. And by the way, this post-birth abortion thing that the sort of far right sometimes talks about, it, it, it's not a thing. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. I mean, um, nobody wants babies to die. And that's one of the reasons when I started my, I think in the first chapter of my book, I attended a pastor gathering with a friend who's a, a pastor. He is, his church is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention and another religious organization as well. And he says, well, when we're talking about 
you know, care for the poor? Isn't Shouldn't that be part of the pro-life conversation? I mean, he sort of rejects the idea that you're forcing people into one box or another. And he's trying to sort of, look, I think most Americans and most American Christians see Christianity have, having something to do with loving one's neighbor and caring for the least of these. And why aren't these types of um, points part of uh, what really should be a kind of pro-life conversation? Yeah. And I, I try to tell my Christian friends that pro-life should mean more should be a longer period than from conception to the second that baby comes out of the birth canal. Our responsibility should be much wider and broader than that. And if, and if the goal really is saving life, then we should be aimed very much so at, at, at going after the contributing factors that lead to unwanted pregnancy in the first place. And, and so sometimes I think we fall a little short on really being pro-life and and it becoming a political battle and i and i think certainly you're talking about at the upper reaches it's become a political battle to the point that it's and 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 i think the looking at its origins as as sort of an an overthrow tool of jimmy carter because his administration was going after private schools is uh, is an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know about that's absolutely true i mean at the time well when there's sort of leaders of what they called the new right. This was a, an intellectual movement that played an outsized role in forming that sort of religious nationalism that we're seeing today in our uh, national politics. They were actually really animated over concerns that the IRS was going to go after segregated Christian academies for their uh, tax-exempt status. Um, now, let's remember, they're really upset about Bob Jones University. The IRS is starting to look askance at Bob Jones University and say, well, you're segregating people by skin color. Why do you have all these tax privileges? And let's remember that Bob Jones Sr. was an ardent segregationist. He identified integrationists as satanic propagandists and you know, who are, quote-unquote, leading colored Christians astray. He called segregation God's established order. So a lot of the pastors, including Jerry Falwell, who were involved in this rise of the new right, where they were very concerned about preserving the tax exempt status of their Christian academies, which were often racially segregated, but they were trying to kind of inspire a broad-based counter, like hyper-conservative counter-revolution at the time. And they were looking for an issue that could unite them. And they knew, you know, let's preserve the tax status of segregated academies. It's just going to be an effective rallying cry to inspire broad masses of people because the issue is really quite ugly. So, you know, the defenses of segregation, you know, God's established order. This is just really... You know, they knew that this is going to be unappealing to a lot of people. So they were sort of casting about looking for an issue that could unite conservative Catholics, conservative Protestants, and bring together some of what some of the movement leaders at the time called some of our fringe extremist friends. So they, you know, went down, there's a, an instant where they went down like a laundry list of issues like segregated academies. They looked at the Equal Rights Amendment, but it was at the time going down in flames and they sort of landed on the issue of abortion. And Paul Weirich, who is one of the leaders of this uh, new right, he was like, hmm, that could actually work. And so over time, they purged those pro-choice or more nuanced voices from the Republican Party until we've come about to a situation what we see today, which is this, you know, Republican Party has been kind of captured by this. It's 
it's almost like we're seeing a new, uh, creation of a pro-life religion. And it's like if, if you can get people to, to vote on that one issue, you can capture and control their vote. Now, here's the irony of that. When leaders of the movement are talking to the rank and file, when they're talking to pastors about the issues they should communicate to the rank and file, it's all abortion all the time. Abortion is the beginning and the end. But when they're talking to their political allies and when they're talking to the some of the most well-resourced funders of the movement, they're advocating for an incredibly wide range of policy positions in domestic, economic, and foreign policy. And a lot of this is about money, how they say the Bible favors low taxes or no taxes for the rich, how Bible favors minimal regulation of businesses, how the Bible is against environmental regulation, how the Bible says that God is against government helping fund the social safety net directly. And uh, these policies at the top are have contributed into kind of hollowing out of the social safety net, a diminishment of the value of expertise in our government. And these types of problems have actually made it harder for us to meet a collective problem like a health pandemic that unfortunately affects all of us and doesn't discriminate and in an effective fashion. So I think the consequences of this type of sort of far right and extremist ideology often don't manifest for some time. But in the case of a, a public health crisis like the one we're facing now, the consequences are too stark to ignore. Yeah. If you think about the division on the the issue of abortion then also becomes the dividing line of whether you believe the coronavirus is a hoax or not. <laughs> you know, you know, something's gone a little offline there. I know. It's really sad. I mean, in mid-March, at a time when it was clear to everybody that this was a problem, Jerry Falwell Jr. went on Fox News and he called the coronavirus overreaction, said the reaction to the coronavirus was like it was an overreaction. And he, he cast it as an attempt to, quote unquote, get Trump. Like as though like a global pandemic is somehow directed as an attack on his favorite political leader. And this kind of hyper-partisanization is so sad, but it does reflect a kind of hyper-partisanization that this sort of extremist right and religious nationalism has brought to the Republican Party. Everything is sort of cast as, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. You're in the world of the pure or the world of the impure. And, uh, and you kind of see that around Trump himself. Some of the folks around him, like, you know, he's always taking this all spin, all politics view of the world, and there's no interest in reality. Everything is kind of spun for a political game. And so, like, some of the folks around him who are meant to sort of guide, you know, cabinets or manage different areas of government, they may not seem like the most competent people or the most educated people in those areas. They appear to be there, some of them really just because of their adherence to an extremist ideology and also because of their willingness to praise the president and, in fact, it appears sometimes prostrate themselves. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, some of them has gone so far as to call him, you know, compare him to biblical kings like uh, King David or King Cyrus and cast him as a sort of imperfect leader that has been chosen by God to enact his will. Yeah, and uh, I, I know a lot of people who believe that. And I, I do want to step back for my listeners here and, and say, again, I think what we're talking about here is not you have to be pro-choice 
or 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 flip on on that belief system but to understand i think it's worth considering as we're looking at our whole civic engagement as people of faith that the the genesis a little bit of the abortion issue was a political maneuver not not a moral one and and i think a lot of people don't even realize i always sort of love this fact and i think you did have this in your book that ronald reagan as a republican governor of california passed the most liberal abortion law in the history of the nation at the time that he was governor before he became this massive pro-life president. And so just, I think, understanding the political underpinnings of that is important to be a consideration because what it ends up being is people saying, okay, if you're pro-life, then you have to vote for all these other things as well, or people are willing to put aside any other concern because of that. So I just think understanding those underpinnings is, is important in our consideration. I think that's true. I mean, the, 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 you know, who doesn't love families, right? I mean, I am pro-family too. I, but I think, you know, this movement has undermined some of the tools that make it possible to raise happy, healthy families, economically stable families. For instance, the movement has tends to side on err on the side of, I, I believe, undermining access to um, family planning. And I think access to family planning is a key part of being able to create a healthy, happy family so that people can sort of have the children that they feel like they're able to. I mean, look, I have children, like raising children is the most profound commitment a person can make. And you really want to be able to do it right. I also think that it's obviously right, right now we have a poorly developed collective infrastructure and that is a consequence of far right wing economic policy and government bashing. And, you know, that uh, the movement has allied itself completely with a kind of libertarian economic conservative wing of the Republican Party that has led to a privatization of the healthcare system, undermining of government everywhere, hollowing out of the social safety net and some of the tools that make it possible to raise healthy and happy families, sort of certainly an undermining of public education. And I think in this way, the movement has betrayed what might have been its strongest suit. I think most um, people understand Christianity as having something to do with loving our neighbors and caring for the least of these. But this movement is undermining a lot of those tools that actually make it um, possible to care for the least of these. And... Uh, it's, it's definitely so. That, so we're talking with Catherine Stewart, the author of the book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Where's the best place for people to get it, by the way? Um, well, anywhere books are sold. I'm always a fan of uh, supporting independent booksellers. But in this difficult moment, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, there's a lot of different places. So we come to 2016. This idea that started as the moral majority, or I think even back to the silent majority of Richard Nixon, then comes to these this value voting. And how significant was that in where we are today with, with uh, President Trump in office? It was a significant factor in all of that, right? Indeed. Um, do you mind restating the question? I'm so sorry. Yeah. yeah. So how, how much has did values voting play into Donald Trump becoming president? Oh, it was um, the the movement. It was everything. The movement has invested in all of the tools of modern political campaigns. There are dozens of organizations at the national level 
that have played a significant role in organizing uh, the thousands of organizations at the local and state level, all sort of collaborating on turning out the vote for the hyper-conservative candidates the movement favors and for Trump. And a lot of the uh, activism has actually run through churches. So when I was researching my book, I went to, just, this is just one thing I did. It was the, these pastor networks like Watchmen the Wall, which is an initiative of the Family Research Council. I attended one of their events uh, in rural North Carolina, where they gathered together pastors to sort of get them on the same page about how to turn out the vote for the hyper-conservative candidates, the Republican, that, that the movement favors. And um, they give them tools like this. I'm going to hold it up. It's called a Culture Impact Team Manual. Some of you might be familiar with how to establish and ministry at your church. And basically what it does is it the, the pastor can figure out which congregants are connected to other congregants, politically engaged, and motivated to turn them out to vote. And so they create these teams within churches so that, look, pastors are not supposed to tell, they're not supposed to politic from the pulpit. This is the whole you know, one of the justifications for those IRS exemptions. But if they can get congregants to do it, it's a way of sort of getting around those guidelines. So they get these congregants to form these teams, communicate these issues, the issues to vote on and the sort of biblically correct way to vote to the other congregants and then help turn out the vote. And a few years ago, a pastor I was speaking to about this type of initiative said it, it threaded a God and a church and state shaped loophole. He called it like a God shaped loophole. Like <laughs> I'm not doing it, but if the congregants do it, you know, I, I can't be held accountable for that. But still he was sort of leading the charge. They also, of course, de- delivered, you know, huge numbers of voter guides. Um, they have these incredibly sophisticated data tools where pastors are able to compare voter rolls with church congregations and figure out who's voted in the last election and try and sort of figure out whether they're able to turn out their congregations to vote and what percentage. And then they hold, um, you know, movement leaders also hold these very effective events and they focus their initiatives on swing districts and on very particular populations. I remember um, Ralph Reed saying at a Road to Majority conference in advance of the 2016 election, he was talking about the resources his organization was going to bring to bear on the election. It was like millions and millions of dollars and thousands of paid volunteers and, you know, even larger numbers of, uh, sorry, paid staff and even larger numbers of paid volunteers. And they were going to send messages to people's phones and they were going to, if people hadn't voted by 4 p.m., they were going to drive to their houses and offer to take them to the polls. So it's a very sophisticated movement, including you know data, media, messaging. They've just spent a lot of time, decades really, investing in campaign infrastructure, and that's why they win elections. I think it's really important to point out in a country where 40 to 50% of people don't bother to turn out to vote, you don't need a majority to win an election. You just need a really coherent and united minority of the population to turn out to vote. Ralph Reed himself said something to the effect of, don't pay attention to polls. Our numbers are going down in terms of the population. It doesn't matter. All that matters is who turns out on election day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And voter suppression then comes into play in that a little bit. But what I think is really significant in what you're saying is when people are saying, God put Donald Trump in as president, 
and they can believe that, and we're not going to disparage that that belief. But there is a very sophisticated machine that was also very instrumental in putting Donald Trump into the presidency. In, indeed, a very sophisticated machine that wants to keep him there as well. Let me interrupt that, that conversation with Catherine. And again, I hope you'll stick in there. Let it challenge you. What if our moral agenda is being driven by political people for personal gain and political purposes? Would that cause us to reconsider how we execute out of our moral beliefs? As we take this break, let me ask you for some help. The financial support for the nonpartisan evangelical comes through a website called Patreon. You may have heard of Patreon. It's a place where you can support creative people. Uh, Patrons were the people that helped support William Shakespeare and Mozart and Galileo to do what they do. Now, I'm not saying I'm any of those people, but I'm doing my best to be creative in a way to invite people to consider Uh, that their mindsets may need to be challenged and be changed. And if you believe in that, there's a couple of ways you can help me financially in that. One is to buy my book. And if you go to my website, npepodcast.com, that's nonpartisan evangelical, npepodcast.com, click on the Joseph the Novel tab. You can see my new novel, Joseph Comes to Town, when the religious right goes religiously wrong. And so buying my book, giving it a, a good review on Amazon, those are ways you can help. And another way is to join our Patreon community at the Nonpartisan Evangelical Patreon page. That Patreon button's in the upper right-hand corner of our npepodcast.com website, and you can join and help for as little as $5.99 a month or even up to $100 a month. And it's going to go to help us start to build a curriculum and a way to invite people to take one step to see their mindset change. So I would really appreciate it if you would join us and help. Go to npepodcast.com, click on that Patreon button, and I want to say thanks to the people that are in our Patreon community right now, Brian and Anisha Kleinhammer. So pr- appreciate you guys for being at a high level on the Patreon page. And Chris and Aaron Leak, love you guys, always have. And our Christchurch family, who are literally my my family of cousins and second cousins in Arkansas, uh, Jim and Jean Huffman, Janae Gilreath, and Janice Huffman, love you guys. Daryl Middleton here in Fresno, you're great. David and Jerry Plasman, love you guys. Dee and Jeff Barr. Ed Mabe, my friend from the East Coast, Elaine Robles-McGraw, you are awesome. Greg, Jean Johnson, uh, who's like my daughter almost, love you, Jean. Um, Jeremy Brown and Holly Brown, our friends. Jerry Dickerson, Jesse Molina and the Molinas, you guys are great. Kelly and George Perez, Lanisha. Gosh, love you, Lanisha. Thank you. Lori Clanton and her wife, Beth. Love you guys. Manny and Blanca Morales. Mehdi and Don Hanavar. Thank you guys. You've been in from the start helping so much. Philip Newfeld, Robin McGee. Love you. Rosie and Curtis Kemp. You guys are awesome. Sonia and Ben Dosty. You guys had us to your house. Sydney Swearingen, and our daughter, Terrence Frazier. Um, Vicki and Sean McGinnis. Thank you guys for being patrons and part of our Patreon community. And for as little as $5.99, you can help us an awful lot. There's a few other levels in there, and we'll do some special things for you. But I just appreciate that community so, so much. Thank you for letting me interrupt the podcast. I hope your heart is still being challenged. Let it be challenged. Say, God, what is there for me to know out of this and wipe away the rest of it, and it'll all be good. We can be okay together, even as we're challenging that. All right. Love you all. Back to the podcast with Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers. 
here on our podcast at npepodcast.com. So how did you get into all of this? How did you, you, it, you're, you're traveling around to all of our conferences and all of these things. And, and uh, how did this become your hobby slash vocation? Well, it's a funny story. You know, I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my little baby and my daughter who's a kindergartner and a good news club came to our public elementary school. And at first I thought, oh, what could be wrong with a club with such a very nice name? And then it turned out to be offering non-denominational Bible study. And I was very naive. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. Look, I'm a big free speech supporter. And I think we can teach about the Bible, even in public schools, from a truly non-sectarian standpoint. You know, it's history or it's literature. But I started to sort of learn more about the Good News Club. And I started to hear stories from parents where these Good News Clubs had been established in their public schools. Remember, these are elementary schools. So the kids attending the club who are like five and six years old were telling, they were figuring out who in their class was not a Christian or was going to the wrong kind of church. And then they were, were being told to target those kids for what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. So I heard from one uh, family where their daughter was on the playground and her little school friend, who's both six year old, years old, came up to her and said, you don't believe in Jesus, so you're going to go to hell. And this little girl that uh, we knew said, that's not true. And they got into sort of discussion. And the teacher sort of overheard this exchange and said, you know, different people of faith have different uh, understandings of these types of things. And so the, our friend's daughter was completely fine with that. She was like, yeah. But the other little girl was really upset and she started to cry. And she said, I know this must be true because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. And so that gets to the heart of the problem with Good News Clubs. Little kids cannot distinguish what happens in their school from something that's sponsored by their school. Schools have a kind of cloak of authority in their minds and they think, you know, if it's taught in school, that must be what their school wants them to believe. So I just was kind of astonished that this was, these clubs were happening in public schools and I started to dig a little deeper into this, these good news clubs and the organization behind them, the Child Evangelism Fellowship. They were referring to our public schools as their mission fields and our children as the harvest. And the more I learned about these initiatives and others like them, the more concerned I became. I was really stunned by the legal sophistication behind their uh, the fact that they were happening in public schools as opposed to in churches and homes and parks and all of these other places that we're all free to practice our relief, our, our faith. And it, it took a long time for me to understand that the movement really wanted to weaken and eventually, you know, destroy public education as we know it. And then I also realized that this was just only one piece of a much bigger story and uh, that this movement had launched an attack on America as a kind of modern constitutional democracy, the sort of religious nationalism is a deeply anti-democratic movement. It favors authoritarian leaders. It doesn't seem to have much respect for many of our constitutional principles as they were written, or even in representative democracy itself, as you can see the effect of the movement and promoting sort of often race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression. I mean, 
leaders of that new right, even Paul Weirich put it out very, you know, remember he's the guy who wanted to sort of help launch that conservative, hyper-conservative counter-revolution. I, don't, I even feel bad calling it conservative. It's radical. It's not remotely conservative. He said, I don't want everyone to vote. Our influence in, election, in elections goes up as the number of voters go down. Mm-hmm. And these sentiments have been articulated ever since by some of their key politicians and supporters. So I, I really do feel like right now we are at a kind of all hands on deck moment. And I wrote this book because I felt I had to do my piece. That's good. And and again, I think, and I think you do this well in your book, what you're trying to say, these, these are sincere people, the, the people that are in the good news club, for the most part, are moms or, or, or people that care about their community. But there's a bigger overarching, and, and I don't mean this from a conspiratorial perspective, but but literally, these are being given that legal sophistication, I think you said by, by larger groups that have a different agenda than just helping the kids in the school. Absolutely. I mean, I think many of them really mean well. They think they're serving the communities that they're operating in. But all of their, you know, kind efforts, I think, or you know, well-meaning efforts are, are being harnessed in service of an agenda that is degrading the public conversation in our schools. It's destroying communities. It's setting neighbor against neighbor. And more than that, it's um, actually destroying our democracy. I mean, this is what religious nationalism does. I think you just have to look at the bigger picture here. When you look at leaders like Vladimir Putin in Russia, or if you look at Orban in Hungary, or if you look at Erdogan in Turkey, or if you look at some of the sort of um, leaders of some of the in the Middle East, you can see when they ally these uh, sort of autocratic leaders ally themselves with religious uh, conservatives in their countries in order, and they bind themselves tightly to those religious conservatives, conservative clerics, in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of power. We rightly identify this as religious nationalism. And I think that's what we're seeing today with certainly with um, Trump's alliances with some of our own hyper-conservative religious leaders. I mean, let's not forget that he does seem particularly friendly to some of the autocratic leaders around the globe and uh, uh, appears to be trying to upend some of the most valuable post-war alliances that have served our country uh, for decades. Yeah, I, I remember Franklin Graham commending Vladimir Putin around the Olympics for his anti-homosexual stances. And and I just try to say to my people, I, I don't think God is going to be happy with him here if he's oppressing his people on the other hand over here. And let's not lose the big picture of, of what we're going after here, which is ultimately for people not to be in captivity or blindness. So what is the, where's the funding come from all of this? The, there are several sources of funding. The movement uh, obtains a large number of small dollar donations from, you know, people who are favorable to it. I receive mail almost every day from the Family Research Council asking for money. The movement also derives a lot of its funding from very wealthy, resourced individuals. Some are belonging to sort of hyper-wealthy extended families I'm thinking of, I'm just offhand, the DeVos Prince families, uh, the Green family. I mean, there's so many others that I mentioned in my book. But I think an sort of underappreciated source of funding is that the movement is really making a bid for public funding and a greater access to public funds. 
I mean, let's remember that religious organizations already obtain tax privileges and exemptions, vouchers and grants and other types of funding, or I should say tax breaks from the public, but they're after more. And this is really obvious in the field of public education, where some of the leading um, legal advocacy groups of the of the religious right, I'm thinking about specifically the Alliance Defending Freedom, have placed a case before the Supreme Court asking for a share of funds for vouchers. Now, there's already some voucher money that goes to religious schools, but our government now spends something like $500 billion on public K through 12. And they know that if they can capture an even larger portion of that, they can open the floodgates, the money will flow without end. And, and this has sort of been an aim for quite some time. And, you know, they're casting the idea of funding religious schools as an, inf- the, the opposition to funding religious schools as an infringement of their religious freedom. Well, basically what they're saying is the, uh, an unwillingness of the taxpayer to fund religion directly is a violation of religious freedom. I mean, this is a, a complete, completely contradicted by the establishment clause of, as it was written. That's the very first clause of our very first amendment in our constitution. So, you know, we really shouldn't have government funding or endorsement of an establishment of religion. So, you know, I think what's behind that, and and right now, um, just, you know, to let you know, eight federal agencies are currently renegotiating the way that they can fund delivering services to the poor or to people who are needy and trying to, like, you know, their faith-based organizations have have long uh, done, you know, service work and, and much of it is like, just fantastic, but there have been rules about you know you know you, they can't proselytize. They're not supposed to take taxpayer money and use it for proselytization. They're really supposed to be delivering services, and there now there's a renegotiations of some of those rules. So it's really an effort to capture a larger amount of public money and get it uh, funneled to faith-based organizations that can then discriminate against people whose lifestyles are very deep being they disapprove of or even or, or proselytize or demand that people attend uh, worship services and things like that if the money is delivered in certain forms. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I try to tell my well, friends. It's huge. <laughs> yes. I, I think if if we're there to serve culture, culture will be happy that we're there. But if we're there to come with our agenda and force you know, try to convince people into our our religious club, so to speak, then I believe we are putting our our tax exempt statuses at risk long term. And you know, I I'm I would fight for the church's tax exempt status as we are serving the community. But the second that we start to do so with a political guise under that, I I do think we're putting that at risk. And and I think you're rightly pointing that out in this book. I guess to, you you sort of hit on this a little bit, but. Summarize for us, like, what do you want the takeaway to be? If somebody that reads The Power Worshippers, what do you hope they, they come away with and, and maybe a reaction to it would be? I hope people understand that, you know, when the movement is really a larger political movement, they need to understand that there's really a, I think it's helpful in understanding the movement to make a distinction between the leaders and the followers and to understand how some of these sort of culture war issues have been manipulated over time to capture a certain subset of American voters and uh, to understand the deeply authoritarian and anti-democratic roots of, of the movement 
I think that's really important. Uh, it's also very important to understand that it's a movement that divides, you know, that doesn't unite and that you know, disenfranchises and doesn't enfranchise and that doesn't sort of serve the least of these. And in fact, uh, and, and, uh, and, and targets, you know, sort of m many and perhaps even most Americans as a sort of internal enemy. Very good. Well, the book is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism by Catherine Stewart. For my friends listening, I would say it's not going to be an easy read for you because it's going to challenge some of your precepts. But I always think it's really important that we have challenges to our beliefs so we know that we're believing what we're supposed to believe. And so from that, I really appreciate the research you've done. Obviously, you did a ton of travel. You went to a lot of events hung out with a, a, a lot of uh, our Christian friends and to get some deep insight. So Catherine, kudos to you. I think you did a great job putting this all together. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Catherine Stewart's your name. That's the book. Hope you'll check it out. And uh, thanks for being with us today.